If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. It's Tuesday morning. How are you, Head? I'm very good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm in great form, actually. In really what's, good form. what's rocking your world at the well, moment? Well, I'm, I'm intrigued now about Michael D getting embroiled <laughs> in this in this carry-on with celebrating the partition of Ireland. This should never have been an issue at all. I know. You know, honestly, you know, why would you go, why would a president of a country go to a celebration of the partition of that country? I know. You know it's, it's just... It, Bonkers. But it's also tricky because, you know, Ireland is so good at remembering and we're not that good at looking forward. If you know what I mean, like we're kind of caught in this obsession with remembering. Yeah, yeah. I, I know what you mean. There, nostalgia is a big thing in, in Irish culture, but, you know, it's, it's time to move on. And as we've often spoken about in, in, the, in this podcast, that it is inevitable that there will be a united Ireland at some stage. Yeah. I, I know that we probably differ on on when that might be, but it is going to happen. It is going to happen. And you've got to deal with all these memories. Like, I And mean, you've got to plan for it and look ahead. We look do forward. have to plan for it. What's the difference between logos and mythos, John? I was mm. reading about Greek philosophy, right? You have two ideas <laughs> Ooh, in Greek philosophy. <laughs> no, what two ideas? One is logos, which is logic, yeah. right? That And logic is all about looking forward taking stock of today, then looking forward. So there's logos in, in, in Greek philosophy. And the other is mythos, which is looking backwards, this obsession of myths, mythology, yeah. where do we come from? Yeah. Who owns the right to speak on behalf of Ireland? I mean, look, you and I were just chatting. My granddad was in the RIC. Your granddad was in the IRA. I mean, yeah. this is this is difficult. <laughs> your granddad was trying to kill my granddad. He was only a copper. He was only giving out parking fines. My granddad's bigger than your granddad. Exactly. But you know what I mean? So if you're obsessed with mythos, the Greek idea yeah. of looking back and creating myths, and then saying that you're more kind of Irish than me, or you're more ethnic than me, that is a that is a dilemma. Yeah. And we should be out doing the whole logos thing, which is logic and looking forward. Well, it's a, it's it's a bit of both. It's it's having that balance between because you got to know, as Bob Marley said, you know, if you don't know where you come from, you don't know where you're going. Bob Marley, you know, speaking of Bob Marley, do you know what I saw the other day when I was going to, to Dubai? That documentary, Marley. Oh, superb! Isn't, isn't it? it? It's, it's brilliant. Su- 
superb. Yeah. It's superb. And if you want to get, you know, you know, it's I was, fish tea, you know, man. It was just brilliant. Yeah. Wasn't it really good? And they had to get, they went from ska to reggae. Yeah. And they kind of invented reggae on the basis of just sort of riffs on the guitar. And yeah. They, it was all about the bass. Yeah. It's just, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. It's an amazing thing. But I want to talk today because we're talking about partition, right? Yeah. There is a thread going through because, you know, out here last week, there's a massive statue being put up of Roger Casement. Yes. and I, I actually talk, haven't seen it yet. I want to talk about Casement. I want to talk about the economics of colonialization. But there is one man, there is one thread that goes through Michael D, partition, yeah. Roger Casement, and that is Edward Carson. Edward oh, Carson, right. who was born in Harcourt Street, where your mother was born. What's he, he? He was born in number four Harcourt Street, which is now probably... Jesus, because that's at the top of Harcourt Street, which is now the new block. He, he was it's, born in Coppers. It's up from Coppers. It's opposite the Odeon is where it is. It's, well, that's exactly so. He was that's born, where my mum was. As well. I know that he was born number four Harcourt Street. But the interesting thing is he was the man who single-handedly came up with the Ulster Covenant in 1912. Right. Okay, which is we will take up arms. So basically they created a terrorist group amongst the unionists, right? Yeah. To fight home rule. He was also the guy whose statue is outside Stormont. Stormont, yeah. Because, and that was erected in 1932 in honour of him by the Northern Irish Parliament. Yeah. Because he was the guy who said, look, we don't want to partition the country. Actually, we want to have all of them remain in the UK. Mm. But if we have to have a partition, we will have it. So that's why they put up so, so that was his idea, the partition. Was no, it? no, it was it was the Brits' idea. See, the Brits, the Brits are hilarious. The Brits partitioned India, yeah, Palestine, yeah. Cyprus, Ireland, everywhere where the Brits divide left. and conquer. Well, no, it's basically they brought in kind of colonialists. Yeah, they brought in different religions. So they brought in sort of things. So in the Raj in India in 1948, Mountbatten, who was obviously yes. a total Egypt. Yeah. He wasn't. He wasn't the sharpest tool in the box. Now, El <laughs> Dicky, right? They, what they did was they just drew lines in the sand. Yeah. And they said, okay, well, the Muslims are up there in Pakistan. We create this country out of nowhere. We have East Pakistan, and then we yeah. have India and have the Hindus there. And they'll just have to get on with it. Exactly. And in Palestine, same idea. We'll just throw, oh, actually, the Sykes Pico, the whole yes, of, yeah, yes. Of, of Middle East has been lines in the sand. Said, oh, we'll put those kind Straight of. Straight borders. We we'll put those Alawites there and put those Shia there and put those Sunni there, right? Just to separate people. And then, of course, the, the great one is Israel Palestine, yeah. where Churchill was so hammered. And himself and Baldwin were putting it together in 1917 that they had no idea where it was. Churchill was Get like, Churchill was like, because Palestine, then the West Bank, the West Bank was the west of the Jordan River. Yeah. And Churchill hadn't really rationalized where Jordan was. I mean, he did a fairly good idea where it was, but it was yeah. like, we'll just draw a line in the sand there. <laughs> anyway, to come back, so Carson is the link, right? Go on, Because yeah. Carson was the chief prosecutor in the trial of Casement. Right? Okay. So Carson, and imagine that the chief prosecutor of the trial of an Irish nationalist was a member of the Ulster Unionist Party. If you think about how mad yeah. that is, right? Yeah, yeah. I was like, but I want to come back to you because Casement is a fascinating person. And I think hopefully we'll get more of Casement over the next few years. And there's a great economic story behind the story of Roger Casement, which is yet to be told. Go on. It's a really fascinating... So, Okay, I cut now to Dean's Grange Cemetery, where okay. my grandparents are buried on my dad's side, right? In Dean's Grange Cemetery, there are 
buried very close to each other, a gentleman called John Boyd Dunlop and Roger Casement's family plot. Okay. Where Roger Casement was supposed to have been buried and his brother is buried. Now the connection... Why, where is he buried? He was interned in London. And the Brits wouldn't actually let his body out until the 60s. And now he's really? in Glasnevin Cemetery. Right. Okay. Oh, of course in, he's in Glasnevin. In the, yeah. in the Patriot they plot. They didn't release oh, yeah. the book. Yeah, 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 yeah. But listen, I'll tell you. John Boyd Dunlop, Roger Casement, economics, what's the connection? Before we get to Carson. It's a gem, right? John Boyd Dunlop is a vet from Downpatrick yeah. in County Down. In the 1870s and 80s, there was a bicycle craze in Ireland, right? We right. always think about the GAA and everything, yeah. but people were really into cycling. And every mammals village... In, in those days. Free mammals, free mammals. <laughs> fellas on bikes without the autoerotic, slightly LGBTQ-friendly clasps and all sorts of carry-on, right? Before the mammals, right? And the, yeah. Who actually looked like baboons. And yeah. you know what I love is the, the ratio... <laughs> Stick to the story. The ratio of mammal to bike is 200K of mammal, 20K of bike. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's it, right? So, <laughs> leave the poor mammals alone. Dunlop is a vet, and he's a sort of an experimental guy, right? And he wants Dan Patrick to win the race. And suddenly, Dan Patrick start winning these inter-county races in Ireland. And people are like, what is, what's going on? Dunlop invented the rubber tyre. Because prior to that, they didn't course, have rubber yeah. over the thing. Yeah. So this made cycling much more comfortable, right? Yeah. Because it was rubber, so it absorbed the shock, yeah. right? This created a huge, huge surge in cycling. Cycling was the biggest craze in the end of the 19th century. Huge all over the world, right? Because it was, it was associated with feminism, suffragette, with freedom, everything. It was a way in which people could travel. Yeah. This created an extraordinary demand for rubber all around the world. Because once they figured out we can put rubber tires on bikes, then we can put them on tractors, then we can put them on cars, then we can put them on any yeah. sort of things. So Dunlop was, and that's the, the company Dunlop. Yeah, right? yep, that's, yep, that's, that's him, him right? right? So John Boyd Dunlop then came down to Dublin, issued his patents, had his little factory here, and changed the world, right? And ended up being buried in 1922 in Dean's Green Cemetery. That's right. his story. But what he kicked off all technology, whether it's the internet or anything to do with a change, will always create a huge economic op opportunity. Yeah. So the price of rubber goes through the roof. Therefore, the places that can grow rubber, mainly equatorial places that can grow rubber, become really sought after. Mm. Right? So that's one story. Second story is King Leopold of Belgium, John. Right. King Leopold of Belgium, okay, <laughs> who was sitting around. So Belgium's a Mickey Mouse country. You see, what I was intrigued by, I, I studied in Belgium, and yeah. I was always intrigued about who paid for the huge houses. Because when you go to Brussels, particularly Brussels, there's these huge sort of late 19th century suburbs of majestic buildings. Right. And as the young economist, when I was about 20, yeah. 21, yeah. I was thinking, where does this money come from? Because it's kind of Mickey Mouse country, Belgium. It doesn't have anything. Yeah. But it had the Congo. Right. So this is the interesting. So all the glory of Belgian late Victorian architecture, public parks, all that stuff was paid for by something. Right. King Leopold is sitting there, always felt himself to be kind of a second rate European royalty, he was part of the, the royalty that was related yeah, to yeah. Queen Victoria and the Tsar. They were all interrelated. Yeah. interrelated. But he was kind of like a Mickey Mouse because he was a little Belgian. He didn't have anything to do. He, didn't, yeah. he had no colonies. A cool name, though. <laughs> King Leopold is a good name. Like Leopold Bloom, who we're going to talk about 
actually next week, right? Right. In terms right. of terms of, but <laughs> so Leopold is sitting there and he says, "Man, as you do, I want a colony. Yeah, I don't feel like a proper king. I've no colony." And the last piece of uncolonized Africa was around the extraordinary river called the Congo River, mm. which is this amazing yeah. river, runs east to west across Africa. And the reason they were obsessed by this, the Belgians, is A, they didn't have a colony, but B, they thought that maybe if they could navigate the Congo River, that the Congo River would meet the Nile. They, did, they had no idea of, yeah, the, yeah. of the geography of Central Africa. And if it met the Nile, you'd have this extraordinary waterway, north, south, east, west. Yeah. So that was the obsession. So the Belgians went into the Congo. And what they created was a thing called the Free Congo Republic, which is nothing free or nothing Republican about it, by the way, okay? <laughs> and it was based on the Transvaal, the South African model, yeah. right? And they said, we are going to give private companies concessions to exploit this colony, right? So they went in wholesale. What they did was something appalling. And the reason they did it was the price of rubber. So Dunlop is sitting in Dublin with his rubber idea, okay? Yeah. There's a boom in rubber. The price of rubber goes through the roof. What grows naturally in Congo, around the Congo River, because it's perfect climate. And it's Amazon and Congo are the two areas yeah. that they grow is rubber, rubber trees. Yeah. So the Belgians figured out, not only had they got this place that they decided was theirs, but they had this place that was full of the commodities that the world wanted, yeah. rubber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then they decided, okay, this is a gold mine. And they sent in prospectors and they divided up the entire place. I mean, it's horrendous, the story of, of Congo. But worse still, they decided that they would have to have a native black police force that would force the local people to harvest rubber and stop everything they were doing. So stop fishing, stop agriculture, everything. So they turned this country, Congo, or this mm. huge area, Congo, into a colony, a vicious, vicious, like a slave camp, harvesting rubber. Yeah. And of course, then what they said, they needed somebody to police it because the local black population was saying, screw this, who are you whiteies, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they got this thing and they called them, they called them the force publique who were a Belgian-paid militia who were imposing Belgian mercantile law and rule on these Africans. They realized that the Africans were didn't want to harvest rubber, right? And they didn't want to be made slaves. Surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the Belgians had an edict, which was basically shoot people who don't harvest enough rubber. On the rubber. spot. Just on the spot. So we're going to give them a target every Every village had a target. And if the men didn't go out, this is an extraordinary story, right? If the men didn't go out and meet that target, they would take the women away from them. They'd split the families. And then if they didn't meet an extra target, they'd shoot them. And here's a strange thing. It's called the law of unintended consequences in economics, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. The only thing of value to the Belgians were the bullets in the guns. This is how weird it was. It got really, really, really weird, right? And we're going to come back to Apocalypse now in a minute. Right. It got really, really weird. The force publique were initially selling the bullets the Belgians gave to them. So the Belgians said, okay, we need to put a stop to this. So what selling, we... Sorry, selling them to who? To other tribes because they hadn't got guns. So it was the most exotic thing you could have. So there was a, there was a, there was a black market in bullets, in the Congo. But they didn't have guns to shoot them. So they were... They were getting guns from elsewhere. So right. basically, okay, so okay, it was okay. a black market. So the Belgians in Belgium said, okay, what we're going to do 
is we're going to have to make sure that every bullet we issue kills somebody. Jesus. So we don't have, because basically the, the force public were going off in militias and they were hunting animals and doing all sorts of stuff, yeah. right? With, with, the, with these guns, right? So the Belgians said, how do we guarantee that every bullet that was used has shot somebody, has killed somebody? Think about the logic of some bureaucrat in Brussels, right? The only way we can do this is if you give us evidence that you've actually killed somebody. The evidence they came up with was a hand. You have to give us a hand, oh, a live hand of somebody, right? Yeah. So therefore, what they said is you'll kill the person, chop their hand off. This has all happened. Give it to us in a fucking basket of hands and we'll give you money. Jesus. Right. This was the ransom. Now, of course, what happened was the force publique decided killing people is too much hassle. Let's just chop their hands off. Right. So this I mean, is, Of course, yeah, then we don't have to deal with the body. We don't have to deal with anything, right? And we keep the bullets and we sell them on in the black market. Yeah. So that's what happened. So these people went around chopping off the hands of children, of men, of women, of everything, delivering the hands to the Belgians. It's how grotesque is this? God, yeah. And the Belgians gave them money, right? So this is going on. And then built their houses in, in Brussels. And then all, you see, of course, what was happening was all the ivory it was ivory yeah. and rubber, but rubber was coming out of Africa, being sold on the international market into a boom, generating enormous money for the Belgians who then built all their fancy houses. Yeah. Like how mad is this, right? Now, into this mix comes Roger Casement. Yes, right? yes, yes. So Casement is at this stage, fascinatingly, Casement has already been in Africa for about 20 years. He's a kind of an adventurer, right? Yeah. He's a journalist though as well. He's a journalist. He'd worked on a shipping company. Amazingly, he met Joseph Conrad, what I want to tell you about in a second, who wrote right. The Heart of Darkness, yeah. which is the basis of Apocalypse yeah, Now, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but he's an interesting <laughs> geezer, Caseman. He's a journalist. He's a traveler, but he's very, very much exercised by what's happening to the native population. He goes in to the Congo on his own bat, because he hears, yeah. right? And the guy he hears it from is a guy called E.D. Morel, who's the hero of this story, who was a clerk in a shipping company. Okay. In okay. Antwerp. Yeah. And this clerk in this shipping company every day could see, the Belgians kept talking about the great trade opportunities between Africa and Belgium, right? Mm. And that's what they were doing. But Morel was a clerk in a shipping company, and all he could see coming into the port of Antwerp was ivory, and rubber. Yeah. But going out was nothing except bullets and guns. So we thought, what are we doing down there? We're not trading with these people. We're killing them. Yeah. And there's an amazing, there's an amazing book called King Leopold's Ghost, right. which documents morale as a kid, like he's a 20, 21-year-old clerk, taking these notes, looking at, at the docks of Antwerp, counting what's coming in, seeing what's going out, and he realizes we're only exporting guns to these people. So somebody is killing people down there. But of course, it was a news blackout, yeah, right? Yeah. He tells Caseman, he begins this, he was a British guy, he was from, he was from Liverpool. He'd be half French, half British, so he could speak French, he could speak to the Belgians yeah, all the time. Yeah. And then he informs Caseman that something fishy is going on down in Congo. Caseman goes down there. Now, at the time, the Belgians were obsessed by keeping the Brits on side because the Brits were the main power in Europe. So they didn't want the Brits to be exposing what they were doing down there. Mm. But eventually, Caseman gets a gig as a junior consul to go down and document what's happening. Caseman goes down to Congo 
and documents exactly what's happening. So all this stuff about the hand chopping off, all this stuff about slavery. Came back through Casement. Came back through Casement. Right, okay. That's why he was made the Sir Roger Casement. Yeah. And he his report was so damning of Belgium and so much on the right side of humanity that the Brits made him a Sir, which is kind of ironic because they were doing all sorts of crazy carry-on everywhere. But what was driving Casement was a an obsession with the rights of indigenous native people in colonies. This was his, his obsession. Mm. Now, during his time down there, this is our apocalypse now, little riff, okay? Right. During our time, his time down there, he meets Joseph Conrad. Because right. Joseph Conrad was actually the captain of a ship that was going up and down the Congo River. Right, okay. And Conrad had heard about this guy called Leon Rom, Colonel Leon Rom, who was a Belgian colonel in this force publique Right. With another guy called van der Kirkhoven, not to be mistaken with the great Dutch footballer, <laughs> Rennie van der Kirkhoven. Well, that's a different one, okay? And they had allegedly, according to rumour, been headhunters. Recruiters. Were, <laughs> recruiters, John! And real headhunters. Real headhunters, right? right? And they kept, to scare the natives, they kept the heads of people whose heads they chopped off impaled on spears all around these militia camps. Right, right. right. That's where... The heart of darkness. Exactly. Yes. So Conrad writes about this guy, Rom, who's a real person in the heart of darkness. The heart of darkness then is taken by Francis Ford Coppola as the basis for Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Rom, who's a real Belgian, is played by a mythical character, invented American character called General Kunst, Colonel Kunst, yeah. who's played by Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando, yeah. The yeah, scene, yeah. the horror, yeah. the horror, right? <laughs> At the end, where you have... The chopping of the cow's head. Yes, yes. yeah, brilliant. yeah. It's a brilliant well, scene. But this is all based on truth. So you have Martin Sheen, who got a heart attack. Do you know that Martin Sheen got a heart attack from taking so much banger on the scene <laughs> they were doing. It was yeah, mountains of cocaine, that, right? <laughs> so Martin Sheen gets over his heart attack. He got a heart attack at 28 from Banger on the bloody thing, right? From Banger. Listen to your man. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? Or from Coke or whatever you call it, right? Anyway, the point is, the point is, all this happened and Casement documented it all. Yeah. Because Casement and Conrad were mates and they were chatting about all this stuff. And the whole Did thing- Did Casement get to meet your man, Rom? No. No, he didn't, but he wrote all about him. Right. And the reason he didn't, because Rom was, like in the apocalypse now, was deep in the jungle. Mm. Like he was like, a, he was like a breakaway, crazy yeah, part yeah, yeah. of the Belgian military. Yeah. So Casement like comes back. Yeah, like yeah, the, exactly, yeah, it's exactly the same story. Casement comes back. Now just think, this is all started because of an invention of the rubber tyre in Downpatrick. Don't get away from this, right? <laughs> and mammals. <laughs> and the mammals, the, the late 19th century mammals, right? Casement comes back does all that stuff. The Brits doctored down the report under pressure from British companies who were doing business with the Belgians, right? But ultimately, Caseman becomes a hero in the UK as a great liberator. Morel, the actual guy who did all the grunt work, also becomes a hero. They both set up some, amazingly, they both set up in a hotel, right, called the Schlieve Donard, which is in Newcastle, County yeah, Down. Yeah, 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 I know. They set up in that hotel a thing called the Congo Reform Movement, which came became one of the biggest reform movements 
in the early 20th century, set up in the Schlieve Donner Hotel by those two. Wow. Right? Yeah. And then they came down here to Dunleary and they did most of the groundwork for the Congo reform movement here in Dunleary, yep. in the Royal Marine Hotel. Yes, yeah, Up the yeah, road, yeah. okay, which is quite amazing. Right? That's, two, that's 1904, 1905. Caseman has made a sir. He's the big deal. But he still is driven by this obsession of native people's rights. And of course, the nativist of all nativists were his own people. Yeah, yeah, of course. So he becomes a Irish revolutionary towards 1910, 1911, around that period. But prior to becoming an Irish revolutionary, he had gone to Peru. This is a fascinating story. And Jeez, Bolivia. Jeez, he got around. Got around because of the rubber trade. Back to our friend, right. John Dunlop. Yeah. Because in the Amazon, what was happening to the people in Congo was also happening to the Indian indigenous population in Peru and Bolivia. Yeah. And the outer regions of the of the very... Very, very deep Amazon. Right? And who who is the colonial power there? Spain, Spain and Portugal. Portugal, but also those countries had become independent by that. The Bolivar revolutions had happened, yeah. so it was just the local oligarchy. Oh, I right? see. Okay, right? right. But fascinating. Mario Vargas Llosa, the Nobel Prize winner, mm-hmm. has written a book all about Casement called "The Cry of the Celt," about what Casement did in Latin America. Oh, right. To expose the crime. Yeah. So he's, a, he's he's an international star at yeah. this stage. Yeah, Caseman, yeah, yeah. He's like a global, he's like a global walking amnesty international. Right? <laughs> yeah. If you can imagine it, right? A, a dude at the highest portion. But one of his problems was the following. He was gay. And it's not a problem. It was at the, the time. It was in the late 19th century. Yeah. He had also seen Edward Carson destroy Oscar Wilde, and he writes it in his own diaries, how upset he was from this. Oh, because, hang on a second, Carson was the prosecutor. In, in the Wilde case. In the, oh, really? Right, okay. So Carson from Harcourt Street. Yeah. And who knew Wilde from Trinity. They yeah, were in college they, together. Because Wilde was just down the road in, in Marion Square. Square. So they knew yeah. each other. Carson was the lead prosecutor in the Lord Queensbury versus Right, yeah, I didn't know that. Wilde. Now, Carson doesn't know Casement, but Mm. Casement is gay and knows he's gay and writes, I have a secret that I cannot tell everybody, anybody, Mm. right? But the problem, and it's a strange thing, it's almost as if he kind of had this weird amnesia. In his diaries, he kept diaries. He was a really brilliant diary. He constantly wrote about gay men and particularly male prostitutes he was with and actually said I was with such and such last night, it cost me 50 quid or it cost me 100 quid, right? So he wrote all this. So, I mean, this was a time bomb ready to go off. It had a very long fuse, but somebody was going to find it. And somebody did find it. So basically, Carson prosecutes Wilde. Casement realizes, I cannot come out in this situation, in this, this, you know, because what happened to Wilde, okay? And he is living this parallel life all the time, knowing if this is exposed, he could end up losing both his liberty, but also public sympathy, yeah. right? Because yeah. it's a really, really hypocritical time. So anyway, he goes off and links together. This is the fascinating thing about Casement. He's one of the very few people to link anti-colonial movements all over the world. So Nehru, who was the first prime minister of India, India was yeah. a massive fan of Casement. And I'd been reading all about Casement because Casement said the Indians, the Africans, the Irish, the indigenous Indians in America we are all linked by anti 
colonialism. We are the victims of colonialism. And he was trying to create this movement. Right. So then when the Brits get involved in the First World War, so home rule is coming. And Caseman is happy to go along with yeah, that. Yeah. He joins the volunteers, but he's happy to go along with them. First World War comes, the Brits say, okay, home rule is off the agenda. So the Irish volunteers realize, okay, we're going to have to fight for this. So Casement ends up, because he's a global superstar, he goes to Germany, right? And he's trying to recruit, this is an interesting story, he's trying to recruit from the Irish prisoners of war in German war camps, an Irish brigade to fight. Now, he has this mad idea that the Irish brigade and the Egyptian brigade, right. who are also part of the British Empire, should fight against the Brits together. Right, okay, Jesus. And of okay. the two and a half thousand <laughs> Irish Catholic prisoners of war that the Germans had, only about a hundred joined them because the rest were like soldiers. They were saying, I'm not interested in this sort of thing. Right, right? okay. And then the Germans got kind of nervous that he was such an anti-colonial figure because the Germans had intended when they won the First World War to keep colonizing. Of course. It was like, yeah. So they kind of encouraged him to leave for Ireland. And he was dropped in, I think, around Ballyhaig in Kerry, Kerry yeah. from a submarine. Yeah. He was picked up by a couple of patrols, British Army patrols, maybe RIC patrols, maybe my granddad, who knows, <laughs> right? Yeah. And he gets away with it, except for the fact that he has a ticket in his, imagine this from an elementary mistake, a Berlin metro ticket. That's how they nailed him. Right, okay. And he had a Berlin metro ticket in his top pocket. And the Brits said, you haven't been hanging around in Kerry all the time. Yeah. You've been in Germany. And he said, how do you know that? Just because we've got a pair of tickets. So he ends up getting nailed because he's got a ticket. Williamsdorf. What's Williamsdorf? It's a station in Berlin. Right, right. And that's how he gets nailed. And in a second, John, we're going to come back to the villain of the piece, our friend Carson, <laughs> who at this stage has signed the Ulster Covenant, is actively seeking not just us staying within the British Empire, but if necessary, the partition of Ireland, back to our friend Michael D. And of course, it's Carson who nailed the gay Oscar Wilde and Casement is petrified about that. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, John, what we're talking about is yes. the economics. This, this terrific stuff, Max. It's good stuff. It's really this good. The economics colonialism. Yeah. And what happens when a technology is sourced? The technology was rubber tires. So rubber had been around for years. Yeah. But our friend Dunlop figured out how to put tires around on bikes. Wheels on bikes. Dunlop becomes a rich man, ends up in Dublin, dies, is buried in Dean's Grange Cemetery, yeah. where my grandparents are buried. Yeah. So too was Casement supposed to be buried there if he had died of natural causes alongside his brother, who is buried there. Right. So that's the epicenter. I've got a load of relations relations up there there too. So that's the epicenter of the story, right? Michael D. refuses to talk partition to the ultra-unionists or celebrate it. But partition is closely associated with Carson, whose statue is outside Stormont, which is the basis of Northern Irish legitimacy or illegitimacy, depending on where you stand. What Carson is interested in He's also related to Casement, our man whose yes. statue is going to be unveiled in Dunleary very soon. Why? Because Carson enters our story right now. So Casement is a global superstar. He's a hero. He's a sir. He's, yeah. He exposed the Belgians. He's on the yeah. side of the right. He's down in the Amazon. He's all over the kip. But now he's in a police station in West Kerry thinking, how am I going to get out of this one? Yeah. And of course, what they find, it, they, they said he was a gun runner. They found two Mauser pistols. That right. was the extent of his gun running. But that was sufficient to be called high yeah. treason. Yeah, yeah. That you were, and basically, Casement is schlepped to the UK, to London, right? But of course, he was a sir as well. So that was a, an even bigger slap in the face for, mm. for the Brits to, to take. Huge slap in the face of Brits. But like us, there's no effing way the Brits are going to let this pass, right? So it's high treason and the penalty for high treason is execution. Yeah. So what happens next is that the case of Casement becomes a huge celebrity case. Arthur Conal Doyle, you know Arthur Conal Doyle? Uh, Sherlock Holmes. 700 quid for Casement's defence, right? Did he? Yeah. I mean, Casement was a hero and there were lots of people saying... So so the, the court case is going on in the Old Bailey. The Old Bailey, 1916. Right. Arthur Conan Doyle, 700 quid for his defence. Which would have been a huge amount at the time. George Bernard Shaw. Mm, who was another superstar who at the was, time. Who was the most famous man in the world at the yeah. time. Mounted Cason's defence and wrote his defence treaties and wrote his speech from the wow. dock. Right? Right. Which Cason refused. And he said, I'll write my own. Thank you very much. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. now, now, of course, physically, Casement is actually incredibly handsome. Tall, elegant, big, bushy beard. Everything, when people write about him, they say how handsome he was. Right. right? Okay. And how regal he was and how elevated he yeah, was. Yeah. He's a real man of principle. So you've got Arthur Conan Doyle. You've Joseph Conrad. You have George Bernard Shaw all on his side. Yeah, it's a good team. Good team. But you have Carson against him. So yeah. the lead prosecutor against him. Back is our friend Carson. Now, Carson has three reasons to hate him. One, Carson looks at him as a real turncoat because both of them are prods. 
Right. So Casement and Carson are Southern Irish Protestants. And Carson feels whatever about the local Fenians want to be independent, much worse, an Anglican. Yeah. Second one, Carson is a homophobe, having put our friend Oscar Wilde into Reading Jail. But third and most importantly, Carson is the leader of unionism, the man behind the covenant, and Casement is a nationalist. So all this is in Mm. the mix, right? MI5, or Scotland Yard, find Casement's diaries. This is the crucial thing. So at the time, public sympathy is for Casement. This is after his arrest. After his arrest, but before his trial. Right. And at the time, public sympathy in England is with Casement because he's a hero. And they say, look, he's Irish. And Casement's defense was, I cannot be tried for treason. I'm not English. I'm Irish. So I'm acting as a foreign national in a foreign country, right? That's the basis. Public sympathy is with him. It's like, okay, it's really, really difficult. It is treason. He is working with the Germans. We understand what he's doing. But then, of course, somebody releases the diaries to the press. The diaries have all the dates and the evidence of him being gay. Yeah. And him going off with usually male prostitutes, right? Which for some reason he kept and some reason he allowed. It's not that he allowed, but it was a piece of evidence that you would imagine at the time was not the cleverest thing. So who do you think? Was was there somebody else who was involved there that would have... I would say it was Scotland Yard. I would say it was... No, but the, who tipped Scotland Yard off Well, that, that I don't know. Right, okay. My sleuthing, John, right, has not right. got to that get stage. Get back to me on that one, will you? I'll get back to this. <laughs> but anyway, so he's tried. Carson, being a very brilliant barrister, mm. wins the case. But I don't think he was ever going to lose the case because it was so inflamed. Yeah. And once the diaries got published, there was a huge, huge moral outrage yeah. against Casement. And the 3rd of August, 1916, he's hanged in Pentonville Prison the 3rd of August, 1916, right? And of course, right. imagine, this is four months after the rising, there's a lot of anti-Irish feeling in yeah, the, at the course, time, right? Yeah, yeah, But the hangman, the man who executed him, in his diaries said, Roger Casement, was the most courageous man that I ever had the displeasure of executing. He went to his death serene, calm, acknowledged everybody, etc. There's a photograph of Casement going to the hangman's noose. Right. With a little rose rosette. He looked really dapper. Yeah. And apparently the people who were with him in prison said he was unbelievably serene, unbelievably calm, never showed any emotion. And that wow. is the guy that we are celebrating in Dunleary, which I think is kind of good because of all the Irish heroes. And about time. Well, exactly. Well, here's another, here's another little gem. Go on. That we won't let, right? There was a statue to Casement. That statue of Roger Casement that yeah. was supposed to be unveiled in Dunleary, allegedly the home of liberal Ireland, yeah. in 1966, was vetoed by the local Catholic church because he was gay and because he was a prod. And at the time, remember, the idea was that there was a little sort of anti-prod thing going on, but it was mainly the gay thing. But Ballyhigh said, we love the statue because he was landed in Ballyhigh. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Perfect. And that. I, in fact, I know that statue as well. Do you? Yeah, yeah. I, I was I there a few years ago. So that, and the, the fascinating thing is the only public, one of the very few public acknowledgements of Roger Casement is Casement Park, which is the local GAA club in West Belfast. Of course, yeah, yeah. But there's very few of them around here, which is also interesting. So that is our story for the week, John. We are linking Roger Casement to Edward Carson, to Oscar Wilde, to Michael D. Higgins, to Partition, and to the economics of colonialism, plus what technology does to prices of commodities. And on the issue of colonialism, we're going to be back on Thursday talking to Marla. Marla Ducoran, about blacklisting, about how the EU is treating small black countries different to big white countries. And as far as she's concerned, and she's from what they call the global south, things haven't changed. Colonialism, or at least neo-colonialism, is alive and well. And you know where it's all been orchestrated from? Brussels. To all you Patreons out there, thank you so much for supporting us. We couldn't do this without your support. It means a huge amount to us. Also, all your feedback, your suggestions, your comments, our comments to you, our replies to you, really is the essence of the whole thing. So, again, thank you very much. And for all of you who might want to support us, check us out. Patreon.com forward slash David Mike Williams. <laughs>